0: and welcome to the Moms and Murder podcast a true crime podcast featuring myself Mandy and my dear friend Melissa hi melissa hi mandy
1: how are you i'm doing awesome how are you i'm doing really good thanks good two yeah. weeks in a row doing awesome <laughs> yeah i i really do think i hope people don't think i'm a negative person i mean at my you are core, not. At you my are core least. I'm incredibly <laughs> <The least> negative. <laughs> well, yeah. that's a, now you're spinning yarn, Mandy. I am pretty <laughs> negative and think everything's going bad. But I feel like I have a reason to a lot of times. No, I'm just kidding. My life is wonderful, but we were just joking and we've had to redo this whole intro. But I feel like Lemony Snicket's, my life is, as you were saying, a series of unfortunate events. <laughs> but <laughs> typically they all come together and everybody's good and healthy and fine, but it's just like – two overflowing toilets on the same day. And those are our options. (laughs) What do you want me to do? You got to hold it. So anyway, it's just been fun over here. And stinky.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, (laughs) well, you always sound happy. I think you just have one of those voices where you just sound very happy and thrilled about everything in life, even if things aren't going great. So you could have fooled me on any given week when we (laughs) talk. (laughs) And I always think that you just sound lovely and very upbeat and positive. The problem is you get all of
1: my text messages between. So you're like, this doesn't match the voice whatsoever.
0: Right, right. <laughs> yeah. The message I got five minutes ago does not sound right. um, like you right now. So.
1: Oh, goodness. Well, before yeah. we get started, we wanted to mention uh, we had our live show this week, our Zoom redo Chicago live show. And it was so much fun. I had such a it good time. It was so fun. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. And it was definitely
0: not what we had in mind when we set out to do a live show, but this is what we have. This is what we have to work with. Everybody is doing Zoom everything. And I personally have not used Zoom very much until we did this live show, but I am happy to say that technology um, worked fine for me and I, I made it work. I made it work. And we did a Zoom live show and it was great. And yes, thank you guys for coming. Those of you who showed up for that, it was a lot of fun and hopefully it wasn't too I don't know. You know how Zoom is. I feel like when people start talking and then it switches the screen. And so hopefully people were able to keep up with us and actually
1: heard the story. It was a crazy story that we did. Um, we did pause for reaction one time and I saw a lot of faces in yeah. your reaction <laughs> shot. So I felt like that was how I was trying to decide if we're still all in sync when everybody's eyes popped out at one point. Yeah. I was like, we're good. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so that
0: went great, and hopefully, um, like I said, hopefully everybody who came to that enjoyed it and thought it was a success just like we did, and we're just not delusional thinking that we did a good job. (laughs)
1: listen to my voice. Does this sound (laughs) delusional? Not today. (laughs) All right,
0: so we are going to get into the episode this week. We have a really, really, really terrifying and crazy story this week, Um, and it kind of goes... Well, it doesn't really go along with anything we've talked about, but I feel like we have recently talked about cases of stalking that have ended in murder, and this is another one of those stories, Um, but today's episode is about a case that might be one of the most disturbing cases of stalking that I have personally ever heard, and you will see why as we get into it. Um, This story made headlines in the late 80s, but I
1: have never heard about it before, before this. Have you heard about it, Melissa? No, I hadn't. It was just looking for stories and came across this. I had never heard of it.
0: Yeah, and I'm kind of surprised I've never heard of it, actually, because it was such a big deal at the time, and it was a huge story. Um, So before we get into the details, it is important to note that at the time this crime took place, there was no laws against stalking, which seems really crazy because the 80s, I feel like it. It doesn't sound like it was that long ago to say, you know, the 80s and that stalking was not a crime. back That's then, because
1: but- you're getting older now. And so now, yeah. <laughs> now the 80s, you're like, that really wasn't that long ago. Children, please stop counting my gray hairs.
0: <laughs> yeah. So the first uh, stalking, anti-stalking laws actually did not come about until 1990, which, again, seems like oh. it was not that long ago. So, yeah. Um, so as horrifying as the details of this stalking case are, Nothing the stalker did was technically illegal until the day that he snapped and committed mass murder, killing numerous innocent victims. Now that stalking has been studied more, we know that there are several types of stalkers. Some of them are predatory and purely fueled by deviant sexual interests, and some stalk former partners due to feeling rejected, and then there are some who latch on to an unsuspecting stranger for no apparent reason. All types of stalking make the day-to-day life of the victim terrifying, but it's hard to wrap your head around being stalked by someone after just one very brief interaction that you had with them. But that's exactly what happened in this case. So there are two types of stalkers that fall into this category of stalking a victim after they first meet them and have never met them before. So there's the intimacy-seeking type of stalker, and these are lonely, they lack close connections with other people, they don't have a confidant. And the victims of this type of stalker are usually strangers, and the stalker decides that they want to have a relationship with them. Usually there is some sort of mental illness that accompanies this type of stalking, and the stalker may believe that there is already a relationship between himself and the victim or herself and the victim. Um, And the stalking usually begins with this desire to establish an emotional connection and have an intimate relationship with this person. And then the stalking continues because the stalker believes that they are already in a relationship with the victim. So then there's another type of stalker called the incompetent suitor type, and this is also a very lonely person who targets strangers and acquaintances, but they're different from the intimacy seeker because they are typically motivated by a short-term goal, such as just getting one date with a person or a short-term sexual relationship. So the stalking will then persist with this type because they are completely blind and indifferent to the distress that they're causing the victim. Which I feel like is one of the most terrifying things about stalking, Um, the fact that they are indifferent to their victims' feelings towards the whole situation. And so it kind of like – I feel like that's one of the things with human beings. Whenever you recognize that you are inflicting harm or that you are hurting a person, one of our natural things is to be like, okay, I don't want to keep doing that. So to think that a person would be displaying this behavior and then just be completely oblivious and unaware to the, you know, damage they are causing their victim – That's part of what makes stalking so scary, because that's what makes it continue, really. Right. So I believe that the man in today's story is one of those two types of stalkers, either the incompetent suitor or the intimacy seeker. But we will talk about that more at the end and kind of see what we think
1: after we hear all the details. So back in 1984, things were going really well in the life of Laura Black. She was 22 years old, and she had every opportunity at her feet. She was a recent graduate of the University of California, Davis in 1983, where she received her degree in engineering electronics. At this point, she gets a job as an electrical engineer for Electromagnetic Systems Laboratory, or ESL for short, which we will be calling it ESL because I barely made it through those three words. (laughs) And this was a company that was located in Sunnyvale, California. ESL was involved in things like the development of strategic signal processing systems, like I know what that is. They were a supplier of tactical reconnaissance systems to the US military, and really they did a lot of highly sensitive work that involved the military. Laura enjoyed being on her own at this point, and she was working at her first real job. Like, this is not, you know, your in college kind of job, this is your first professional job. And so that I, is a real, real job. There's oh no gosh. Way, like you said. I <laughs> you know there is no way.
0: Um, like you said, I don't even, I barely even know what any of those things mean. Like no. I'm happy that They're we words. have people doing these jobs, but oh my gosh, yes. She was obviously very smart um to be able to get this kind of work and to do this kind of job. It's just crazy. Like I said, I don't I really don't even understand what any of it development of strategic signal processing systems i have no
1: idea what that even entails (laughs) truthfully if they wanted me to apply for that job they'd have to say just say those words if you can say that we'll move you to the next step and i'd be like actually (laughs) i'm out of here i cannot do that no thank you so she's at this point she's also pursuing her master's degree at santa clara university so in 1984 though everything changed when this man named richard farley came into the picture Richard was a fellow ESL employee and he had been assigned to work at this facility in Australia, like their facility over there the last five years, but at this point he's back in Sunnyvale. And so he has this really impressive background. He's done all kinds of things. He's been with this company for six years at this point. He even has these top secret security clearances from the US government. But something very wrong with Richard was about to be revealed. On the first day back at the office in Sunnyvale, he meets his 22-year-old, Laura Black. And so Laura is obviously very friendly and very professional, and Richard takes an instant liking to her. There was a 14-year age difference uh, at this point, Richard's 36, but Richard says it was love at first sight. In August of 1984, Richard asked Laura to go to lunch with himself and one of his friends, and Laura says yes, it's not a date, it's her and two of her co-workers, and this is the only time that they ever have any sort of social outing together. Richard continues to make these attempts to get Laura to go out with him, but she always declines his invites. She wants to keep their relationship as being professional, and she had no romantic interest in him whatsoever. But Richard would not take no for an answer. And he made the next four years of Laura's life a living hell.
0: So up until this point, there really were no signs that Richard was like this at all. He was born July 25th, 1948 in Texas to his parents, Thomas, who was an aircraft mechanic in the Air Force, and his mom, Mina, who stayed at home with all six of the kids. And Richard was actually the oldest of these six kids. They moved around a lot because of Thomas was in the military, but they did settle in Petaluma, California when Richard was eight years old. His dad was gone all the time with work. And when he was home, he was a really good dad. He spent a lot of time with the kids and there was really, they weren't lacking for any kind of relationship there with their father. He retired from the air force in 1960 and became a school custodian. And at that point he had a really weird schedule and he had a little bit less time for just hanging out with Richard and his siblings. His mom, Mina, later said that there was much love in the house, but the family displayed little outward affection. And that is something, it really fascinates me because I also am not very affectionate. Like physically, I feel like I, you know, we always joke around like, you know, that you don't like giving hugs and stuff. And like, I do, like I will hug people. I don't mind like that kind of, you know, contact whenever I see my friends or whatever, but in my house I am not a terribly snuggly mom I'm not a very um I just don't like people being on me like clinging to me oh that yeah way. so I totally understand what she meant like that there's love here but we are not that like super huggy kissy family and so I get that and I don't feel like there's anything wrong with that if you are that way if you're right, not right. like super overly affectionate physically I don't feel like that That doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean you're going to, you know, ruin your kids' lives or turn them into some kind of monster. I mean, let's hope for (laughs) both of our sakes that that's true. right? (laughs) Yeah. So during Richard's childhood and teenage years, he was very quiet and very well behaved. He was not the attention seeking type of child. He was very smart and gifted really when it came to the topics of math and, you know, science, especially chemistry. And he took school very, very seriously. He never did drugs. He didn't smoke. He didn't drink. Um, and he had other hobbies that were also very good for his brain, you know, like chess and bridge. And he played ping pong. They called it table tennis. That's the same thing as ping pong. Yeah, yeah. Right? I hope so. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but he was also into photography and baking. He was never violent. He was very well mannered. And he really just had all these great qualities that you want in your child. He was helpful and he was just very pleasant to be around. He graduated high school in 1966 and went on to Santa Rosa Community College for one year, but then he dropped out and enlisted himself in the Navy. And at that point, he kind of went off on his own really to explore the world. He didn't see his family a lot. He actually only saw his parents three times between 1973 and 1988 after he joined the Navy. He went to Naval Submarine School and graduated first in his very small class of six, but he withdrew from the submarine program and decided that he wanted to pursue a different uh, a different route. So he became a cryptologic technician sure, and sure. worked with classified electronic systems, which, again, smart people stuff. There's no yeah. <laughs> way I could ever do any of these
1: things. <laughs> Hashtag smart people stuff. Yeah. Yes.
0: So in 1968, he gained top secret clearance to access sensitive information for, of course, the U.S. government and for the Navy. He had to go through this very extensive and thorough investigation before he was able to do that, and he was deemed trustworthy, reliable, and he was determined to be loyal to the U.S. government. But he had to repeat this process, you know, go through this um, investigation every five years, hmm. I guess, to make sure you're still loyal to the yeah, U.S. Yeah.
1: government.
0: Yeah, so he performed really well in the military. All of his evaluations were really high. His, um, you know, his superiors spoke very highly of him, and he served in the Naval Security Group. He collected intelligence information about adversaries to disseminate that information to the military and intelligence agencies. So he's kind of a little bit of a spy, I guess yeah. you could call it. He contributed to national security by maintaining this very high-tech equipment, and the job was considered to be uh, vital to the national defense. He also maintained search and rescue equipment for aircrafts and ships that were in distress, and he helped save lives as well as to st- actually save these ships and aircrafts that were in distress. He was honorably discharged in 1977 and then he moved to California and bought a house in San Jose and that is when he got this job with ESL in Sunnyvale later that year. His work at ESL was also highly sensitive work that was vital to the national defense and he worked on equipment that enabled the military to determine location and strength of enemy forces. At ESL, some of his co-workers liked him and some of them did not. Some said that he was actually pretty arrogant and egotistical and boring, um, which <laughs> I guess there are a lot of things that you could say about me. I feel like boring would be the one that
1: cut the deepest. <laughs> uh, right? That. That's what I was thinking. I was like, I I could take the other ones, but that last one's like, whoa, what did I do to you? <laughs> right, exactly. Um,
0: but he also had some weird things that he would talk about and brag about and specifically one of the things that he liked to kind of hype himself up about was how great he was at using guns and how this was a skill that he was very proud to have. And he had a lot of guns and he would often say, you know, not only do I have these, but I'm really good at using them. So he wanted people to know that that was part of his skill set, I guess. Um, So other coworkers, though, they said that, you know, he was really nice and he was a conscientious guy and he was really good at his job and they didn't have any problems with him. They didn't see this arrogant and boring side that these other coworkers saw. When it came to his evaluations with ESL, he performed nearly perfectly. And I think his lowest evaluation, he got like a 96 point something. So he was way up there. He was always yeah. getting really good, um, really good marks with his job. In March of 1978, he got security clearance um, from the government for this company, ESL. I guess you don't just get like a general's government security clearance. I guess Hmm. you get it at different jobs that you have. Because I was wondering, I was like, well, he already had it before. But I guess this is specifically for his work with ESL. So then he was assigned to go to work in Australia for a while. And that brings us up to date with his return to the Sunnyvale office and when he finally meets Laura for the first time.
1: So nothing that's in Richard's history even remotely indicates that he's capable of this really scary behavior like stalking. But he became fixated on Laura as soon as he first saw her. And things get awkward very quickly because they work together, which of course is a problem. If you have a crush on somebody that doesn't like you at work, that's gonna be a problem. You have to see them all the time. And so at first, Richard's behavior seemed like very aggressive flirting. And so he asks her for a date, and she keeps refusing. He would ask her again, she would refuse, and it just kind of kept going on. Um, Instead of leaving her alone and just moving on with his life, Richard did the following things. He learned Laura's entire daily schedule. He found out all of her personal information, which included her birthday, her address, where she went to school, addresses of her relatives. Like He knew everything. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And so once he has all this information, he begins actively stalking her. And he joins the same aerobics class she has. I can't even imagine seeing this man oh in my, my aerobics gosh, class. I know. Yeah. He attends her company's softball games and he actually drives by her house on a regular basis. So, everywhere Laura was, that's where Richard was going to be. And he continues to call her constantly, so much so that she gets an unsolicited number. On several occasions, Laura tells Richard, you know, I don't want a romantic relationship with you. I don't want to go on any dates with you. Let's keep this professional and, you know, we can be friendly around the office. But Richard's behavior kept persisting. And so he takes it w- way further and he starts making copies of her office keys, her desk keys, and even her house keys. Oh my gosh. Ugh, yeah.
0: And he- I don't understand the thought process there, though. Like, what right. are you going to do? I mean, I. Her office and her desk, I guess if you want to snoop through her things at work, but what is your plan? I just don't understand. I don't understand how you make the connection like, this is okay. You know, I'm going to steal her house key and make a copy of it for myself. And what is your plan after that? What are you going to do with it?
1: Yeah, no, I know. There's There's no innocent reason you would ever do anything like that. So he would buy her these gifts and leave them on her desk. He would use her work computer without asking her, follows her home he harasses her with these phone calls constantly. Like we were saying, she had to change her number, but he just constantly was calling. And when none of this still sways Laura to go on a date with him, which surprisingly this, you know, big shocker here that none of these things make her more interested in him, he starts to write her letters. And so over time, Richard's intensity increases exponentially. And he goes so far as to have Laura listed as the beneficiary to his own life insurance policies. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So his behavior towards Laura is torturous and he just wouldn't stop. And so he would write her around two letters a week, begging her just to socialize with him. And he rambled on about how he'd want to buy a house with her. And he had a foreclosure on his house and how he owes the IRS $30,000 and much more. He was just telling her everything going on so she could- All of these things definitely make me want to date someone. Right? (laughs) And so he expresses in these letters as well that he wants to know where she is all the time. And so Richard's persistence and threatening behavior leads Laura to seek help from the HR department at ESL in October of 1985. Keep in mind, like Mandy said earlier, this is 30-something years ago. We didn't have this kind of, we had no stalking laws, and this is different. Like, we have so much information now. I feel like when something like this starts, you're like, oh, Okay, this is what's going on. But back then I just don't feel like this is something we saw or that was talked about really, I should say. So, Richard's brought in for this meeting and he says, you know, okay, you know what? I'll stop sending her letters and gifts. I'll stop following her home and I won't use her computer anymore. But just two short months later, he's back to harassing her. And so, that's when he writes this letter threatening both her and her roommate. So, Laura goes back to HR and she- That's when Richard's given a written warning, okay? And so a month later, another written warning is given to him for stalking Laura. This one makes him really angry, though. So he confronts Laura in the parking lot, and he starts talking to her about all the guns he has. And he says, quote, He's no longer going to ask her what to do, but rather tell her what to do, end quote. Whoa. Yeah. And so then he sends her this letter that says, you know, I'm not going to kill you, but he had, quote, a whole bunch of options, each getting worse and worse, end quote. And then he keeps talking about these guns and how he's so good with them. And he warns Laura not to, his words, push him and said if she doesn't give him a chance soon, he was going to, quote, Crack under the pressure and run amok, destroying everything in my path until the police catch and kill me. End quote. And he ended the letter with quote, you know I'm serious when I show you a letter like this. I cannot
0: imagine just how terrifying. And like you said, there are no laws. So it's like, even though you are scared, it's like, what are you gonna tell the police? There's nothing What are they gonna do? There's no law. Exactly. There's no law against sending somebody this kind of a letter. Um, it's just so crazy to wrap your head around that there were no laws against this. Right. Community. So by this time, the people in the office were well aware of what was going on between Laura and Richard. It was no secret. Everybody knew that he had been harassing her and stalking her and scaring her. And he'd been warned by HR multiple times, you know, that sexual harassment was illegal and he could lose his job if he did not knock off this behavior. So Richard though pushed back and he said, you know what? No, no. If you fire me, I'm going to escalate this even further. He threatened to actually take My action gosh. and, you know, show violence towards people that he worked with. And he told the HR manager again about having these guns and how he's not afraid to use them. And if he was fired, he said that he would not have anything left to live for. So the HR manager, you know, really was at a loss. And she was like, what are you trying to say here? Are you trying to say that if, you, if I fire you, you're going to kill me? And Richard said, yes, and I'm going to kill others My as gosh. well. Somehow, though, the police were not notified and he was not fired from his job. So in late February, early March of 1986, Richard really is not the favorite guy in the office at this point. Nobody really likes him. Everybody is kind of on edge with him around. um, And it's just not really going well. It's very hostile environment at the office. So he asked if he could meet with the lab manager whose name was Ever. So he told Ever about his concerns that Laura was going to get this restraining order really soon and Ever suggested leaving Laura alone, you know, basically just said, hey, if you want all this to stop, it's up to you. All you have to do is literally just leave this woman alone. But he got defensive and he said, quote, I have every right to see Laura anywhere. And, you know, he admitted that he followed her home. He drove by her house. He attended her softball games. He goes to the same aerobics class. He is not even... Even he is just out in the open with all of this behavior and he tells other people like, yes, I do these things, but I have a right to do that. You know, I can, I'm allowed to, um, which again is one of the most terrifying things that he actually believes that he has a right to harass her in this way. Um, so ever once again, um, really implored him to just stop this and, you know, told him you are risking your job and you are scaring this woman and she is on the verge of getting a restraining order against you. Like, please just stop. Um, but Richard said that if she did go through with getting this restraining order, he would be highly upset and he didn't know what he was going to do. And once again, talked about his guns and that he is a good shot and, he you know, he knows how to use these. So about a month later, Richard's supervisor actually talked to him and once again warned him that his job is at stake and his security clearances from the government are also at stake. And he told him that he needed to be at his duty station at all times and doing his job and not following Laura around and worrying about what she's doing. And Richard got angry and said he didn't care. The stalking and harassment didn't stop. It just continued and escalated and got worse and worse and worse. And at this point, Laura really felt defeated and just felt like, there's nothing she's going to be able to do to get him to leave her alone. And at this point, it's been years. He has been doing this for a very long time. So she's kind of just accepted that this is her life, which is really sad that she, you know, just feels like I'm stuck with this guy. Like either I'm going to have to change my name and move away, or I have to just deal with this. So finally on May 2nd, 1986, Richard was fired from his job, but it was not for the sexual harassment or for the stalking. They said that it was for poor performance at work. Um, but that didn't stop the stalking. It actually made it worse now that he was not in the office more time. every day. Yes. So he became even more aggressive and even more threatening. And he would lurk around the parking lot at ESL and wait for Laura to get off work and come out and just continued all of this behavior. He actually did start a new relationship with a woman named Mei Chang. But even that did not stop him from mm-hmm. harassing Laura. He really spiraled into having a lot more problems as well. He started having financial problems. He lost his house. He lost his car. As we said, he owed a lot of money to the IRS and back taxes, and things were really falling apart in Richard's life and spiraling out of control. And at this time, before this, he was fine. He, I mean, not fine, obviously, but he was not mentally in a bad place. But now that things are falling apart, he's lost his job. Laura is still not taking his advances He is starting to become depressed about this whole situation. And we are going to get into a lot more details of this story after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. I'm working every day to make small changes toward a healthier life, and those changes can add up in a big way. But to do that, it needs to be easy and convenient, which is why I love Grove Collaborative. Grove believes going green shouldn't have to be hard, and that's why they take the guesswork out of it. Grove has made their site so simple to navigate that I'm able to look through tons of categories and thousands of products for things like home, beauty, and personal care products, and they're not only guaranteed to be good for myself and my family,
1: but my home and the planet. Grove is the online marketplace that delivers healthy home, beauty, and personal care products directly to you grove has it all truly i can get anything from grove coast hydrating hand sanitizer which i swear by to shameless pets dog treats in a variety pack for our puppy grove has everything you need for every member of your family even of the canine variety join mandy and i plus over two million households who trust grove collaborative to make our homes healthier and happier plus shipping is fast and free so you can go grab those things you're running low on right now making the switch to
0: natural products has never been easier for a limited time, when our listeners go to grove.co/mm, you will get to choose a free gift with your order of $30 or more, but you have to use our special code. Go to grove.co/mm to get your exclusive
1: offer. That's grove.co/mm. It's February and our New Year's resolutions may already be behind us, but if you're still looking for a way to start the year off right, look no further than the newest Rothy styles like comfy shoes and even brand new bags and washable masks. My steel gray tennis shoe from Rothy's are two years old now, and you really never know, thanks to their amazing durability and the fact that when they're getting a little dirty, I just throw them in the washing machine for a quick refresh. That's right, because Rothy's are completely machine washable, making them far and away the best shoes I've ever owned. But beyond their magic
0: genie cleaning powers, Rothy's are
1: comfortable. They are without a doubt the most
0: comfortable shoes I've ever owned right from the jump. And don't just take our word for it. CNN says Rothy's are the comfiest slip-on shoe I've ever owned, period. And Julie J says they're
1: her favorite shoes of all time, and we couldn't agree more. Not only are they so comfortable, but they're so durable and so, so cute. There are tons of styles and patterns to fall in love with. And what's even more amazing is that Rothy's has actually transformed over 70 million bottles into these beautiful shoes, handbags, and face masks. Turns out, shoes made out of recycled water bottles are really, really comfortable thanks to their seamlessly knit-to-shape design created from thread made from recycled bottles. Check
0: out all the amazing shoes, bags, and masks available right now at rothys.com slash moms. That's rothys.com, R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash moms. Style and sustainability meet to create your new favorites. Head to rothys.com slash
1: moms today. Now back to the episode. So before the break, we were talking about where Richard is. He's lost his job now. He has this girlfriend, but he's in huge tax debt. He's lost his house. He's lost his car. He really doesn't have a lot of good things going on for him in his life. And things have really taken a turn with Laura where it, he's getting more and more aggressive and more, you know, having these violent ideologies. So in early of October of 1987, Richard is really on the brink. He writes this letter to Laura and he says, quote, I have nothing else to lose now but my life. so don't try pushing me any further. end quote. So at this point, he's written her over 200 letters over this three plus years he's been stalking her on top of everything else he's done, following her, calling her, you know, making copies of her keys. He's just, you know, relentless with this. So in late October, Richard gets a job at Covalent Systems. The co-workers that he had there said he was a really good employee, he was patient, he was responsive, he seemed to have control over himself, and he performed really well. In 1987, Richard starts talking to this friend named Thomas, who was a former ESL coworker. In this conversation, Richard is really upset, and he's worried, and he's talking about how he owes this money to the IRS, and they're going to start garnishing his wages, and he basically was overwhelmed and didn't have much to live for. In this conversation, he mentioned the San Ysidro McDonald's mass murders, and this happened back in July of 1984, and it was where 21 people were killed and 19 others were injured when this 41-year-old named James Huberty, who was ended up being killed by police sniper, 77 minutes into him going on this rampage. And at the time, it was the most deadly mass shooting on record. And Richard says in this conversation after talking about this, quote, I wonder what they would do or what they would think if I did something like that. "End quote." Oh my gosh, this is terrifying. It is. I mean, he's he's telling them everything he wants to do, and nobody's doing anything. Nobody. I don't know if it's nobody believes him, or I mean, it would be hard to believe somebody would do this, right? Like if if somebody you know is yeah. just having this conversation, it would blow your mind that they're. I don't know. You'd have to. You could think of a million things to not believe that they were thinking of actually doing this, and so. Thomas wondered in this conversation, does he mean ESL? And he's another person that does not take Richard seriously, which seems to be a huge theme in all of this that, like I was just saying, people just don't know. And they even if they do believe he could do this, nobody really knows what to do. So later in November, Richard writes another letter to Laura. And he said... You know, she thought everything that he's doing is a joke, and he warns her not to show any of these letters he's sending to her to anyone because they, quote, might do something stupid, which would make me do something stupid, and it would spiral beyond any hope of recovery, end quote. In this letter, he blames Laura for getting fired. He blames her because now he owes thousands of dollars to the IRS. Don't understand how she's involved in that. He blames her for his foreclosure, but in it, he still says, I still like you. And so he continues. These, oh, my gosh. Yeah. I feel like you would just be like, please stop liking me. That's all, you, I know. all I want you to do. Just stop. Right. So he's continuing these threatening statements such as, quote, why do you want to find out how far I'll go? And I absolutely will not be pushed around. And I'm beginning to get tired of being nice, which this is not my definition of nice. So I don't even know where he's going with that. And remember, like we were saying, there's no laws against stalking at this time. He can send her as many letters as he wants. No one can do a thing about it. Everyone thinks he's unhinged, but no one really takes these threats seriously. And so a couple weeks goes by, and Richard writes Laura another letter. And he says, on second thought, he doesn't want to kill her. He wants her to live through whatever it is he's planning, so she would regret the consequences of her actions. Basically, you don't want to date me? Now look and see what you've done. And so in December of 1987, he says, quote, do you still believe I can make you pay attention to me? End quote. So co-workers at ESL become increasingly worried for Laura. In January of 1988, Richard is, you know, seen walking around and creeping around the ESL parking lot. And it was then that a co-worker named Robert comes out and confronts him and asks him to, you know, just leave Laura alone and says, if you keep doing this, you're going to end up in jail. This encounter does not help, and it really fuels Richard's fire. So then he writes Laura a letter saying tell Robert to back off and mind his own business and said he better not see any police near him. So later in January of 1987, Richard puts another note on Laura's car along with a copy of her apartment key. And I can't imagine seeing this and knowing that's what it is. And so this leads her to go ask an attorney for help. Up until now, she has no restraining order against him. She says, you know, Laura goes on to say, because ESL wouldn't pay for it, She also didn't have time to really deal with this before. She hadn't followed through with looking into this restraining order. In February 8th of 1988, Laura's granted a temporary restraining order. And in it, it says that Richard must stay 300 yards away and cease all contact with Laura. This includes calls. This includes letters. And he's also ordered to pay Laura $1,000 for attorney fees, which I'm sure makes him really happy and orders him to return a number of items that he's stolen from Laura And then they have a court date that's scheduled for February 17. Richard gets his restraining order, and he is furious and highly emotional. And this is when he begins planning his revenge and what he is going to do to Laura as a result of this. So he writes a letter to Laura's lawyer the day that he, you know, the day after this uh, restraining order has been filed. And he claims he and Laura are in a relationship even though this restraining order very clearly says that they are not. And he says, you know, I've got proof of our relationship, I've got photos, I've got a garage door opener to her house, which isn't creepy, and I've got hotel and credit card receipts. So I've got all the proof you need. Meanwhile, he's making all these plans to do something much, much more sinister. So he goes to a sporting goods store looking for high-capacity firepower, and he buys semi-automatic shotgun and ammo, He writes a check that later bounces, and the clerk says while he's buying all this that he is completely calm. And so he takes this new gun and goes to the range to try it out. He buys six of those silhouette uh, targets, the ones that look like a person, and he buys 13 boxes of ammo. And he returns the next day and buys over 1,000 rounds.
0: On February 11th, Richard also um took things a step further and he sold his truck that was actually worth $20,000 but he I guess had a friend that wanted the truck or was interested and liked it and he sold it to this person for $5,000. So obviously that's red flags should be going off like why is he getting why is he getting rid of all this right. stuff? You know this truck is worth a lot more money. Why is he selling it for $5,000? On February 11th, Richard also decided that he was going to sell his truck that was worth $20,000. And um, he had a buyer that was interested in his truck before, I guess, had just made comments like, hey, I really like your truck. And so he offered to sell the truck for $5,000 in cash, and um, which, of course, is very a very steep, yeah. um, what do you call it? <laughs> a very steep discount yeah, on a yeah. truck that is worth $20,000. And so while he was making this transaction and selling this truck for this very low price of $5,000, he was acting very, very nervous. So after he gets rid of his truck, the next day, he went to a company called Homes Away From Home. And I guess they do motorhome rentals and things like that. So he was there to inquire about renting a motorhome, which I have no idea really what the motivation for that was, but that's what he wanted to do. Right. So he also had, um, that same day, he went later to HR and had Laura removed from his life insurance. And um, he made his girlfriend, or I don't know if they were still dating at the time, but he made May Chang the sole beneficiary of his life insurance policies. And he also updated his will. On February 14th um, and 15th, 14th or 15th, it was unclear from the research, um, Richard May and his friend Jerome moved some of Richard's stuff into a storage unit that was actually rented in May's name. And he was pretty happy while this was going on that, you know, Jerome and May said that he was in good spirits while he was moving his things. There was nothing that seemed like it was bothering him. He was very upbeat. Um, and they also helped him move some of his things out of a rental property that he used to live in. On February 15th, Richard went to the shooting range again, and he picked up the motorhome that he rented, and he wrote a check to do this, which, of course, later bounced. As we mentioned, this is a common thing. He right. has no money, and he's just writing all these bad checks. This is back in the day when you even could. I yeah, I like. would take a I few guess days you could to still catch write up a bad you. Check. Yeah, yeah. It's just not very common anymore. But this was a thing back then where you would just write a check, and they would have no idea if right. you actually had the funds until they tried to cash the check. So the following day on Tuesday, February 16th, it really was just another day. Started off normal for Laura Black and the rest of the employees at ESL. They had no idea about the horrors that were going to unfold just hours later that afternoon. At about eight o'clock in the morning, Richard went to his job, his new job, and asked the accounting manager if he could pick up his paycheck. But the manager, whose name was Linda, told him, you know, these paychecks are not available until after 10 a.m., why do you need to have it so early? It's eight o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday. Why don't you just go to work? Um, so Richard said that he had to go and buy a new gun. He just tells Linda, oh you know, gosh. he needs his paycheck because he has to go buy a gun, which is very odd because you would think like he would try to be a little bit more. Yeah, everyone's already and kind of try to cover it up, right? Yeah, it just is. He's just v- being very out in the open about everything that he's doing. So he goes and either gets a new gun. I'm not, it's unclear if he did go and buy a new gun that day, but in the early afternoon that day, he did go to the shooting range again. That afternoon, he dressed himself in military fatigues, black leather gloves, a scarf around his head, and he had earplugs in. And he gathered up a whole bunch of weapons that he had. He took uh, four loaded bandoliers, he also took a 12 gauge semi automatic shotgun, he took a rifle that had a scope. He took a 12 gauge pump action shotgun, a 22 revolver, a 357 revolver, a 380 pistol, and a 9 millimeter pistol. So he is armed to the teeth at this yeah. point. He also took a knife, a smoke bomb, and a gas container. He then drove to the ESL building in this motorhome that he rented and parked it there. And he walked across the parking lot, as I said, fully armed and ready to enter the building and unleash his fury. There was absolutely nobody that was safe from Richard at this point. As soon as he exited the motorhome, he just started shooting anybody that he saw in the parking lot. He started shooting at them. One of his first victims was 46-year-old Lawrence Kane. And another man named Randall Hemingway was nearly shot, but he managed to duck behind his car door. Richard was on a mission. He had a one-track mind and he, you know, shot his way into the building because there was security glass. And of course, this is a, you know... As we said, this job, the people that work in this building are doing highly sensitive work with the military. So I assume you can't just walk in there. You probably have to have a key card or something like that. So he shot out the security glass um, at the front and entered the building that way and just immediately continued firing on everybody that was inside the lobby. He also started shooting out computers and other equipment that was in the building. And he, you know, was making his way around really slowly, but deliberately. He, you know, had a plan and he knew what he was doing. He was shooting victims completely at random just as he encountered them. I mean, at one point he went into the stairwell so he could make his way upstairs and there was a person standing there and he shot this man that was in the stairwell. There were at least five people that he killed before he got upstairs, but he did finally make his way up to the second floor where Laura's office was. And that you know was really his destination. That's where he was headed. So when Richard finally makes it to Laura's office he she had her back turned towards him when he first got up there and you know she was i don't know whether she was on the phone she may have been on the phone it was right. i read one thing that said she was talking on the phone to somebody but then something else i read said that she was just sitting in her office um but she was smiling at first and she turned around and saw richard and of course the smile immediately disappears from her face she sees richard standing there he has a gun he's in her office he looks angry and so she slams the door she gets up and slams the door in richard's face and this of course makes him angry so he shot through the door and you know didn't know if he hit Laura or not but he actually did he hit her in the shoulder and so she collapsed and fell unconscious for a little while so richard then left her office and he went room to room in this building really just on a rampage he is shooting at everybody he's shooting at people that are hiding under desks he's hmm. shooting into office doors you know people that are hiding trying to hide in their offices and like I said, there was really nobody safe from him at this point. At 2 53 PM, just three minutes after the shooting began, the first 911 call was made. A SWAT team was dispatched to the building. And at this point, there's about they think there's about 50 employees that are in the building hiding. Richard avoided the SWAT team by constantly moving around the building. So they're, you know, they get them there and they're outside and they're trying to figure out where is he in the building because That's the only way they're going to be able to, you know, to apprehend him. And he just kept moving around, walking around, which for the people that were inside, I cannot imagine just the horror of him walking around like this. And he isn't staying still. And like, you know, that the police are there and they're trying to help, but you don't know what he's going to do. You don't know where he's going to go next. And you don't want to get up and start moving around either. I just, it just the level of terror. I just can't even imagine these people. So At 3.15 in the afternoon, this is, of course, just several minutes. You know, this has been going on now for less than half an hour. So he uh, calls the – he uses the emergency telephone that's inside the building. And it doesn't go, of course, to uh, 911. It goes to, like, an inside emergency helpline. Right. And so an ESL employee named Robert Mancibo actually answered. And Richard says, I'm the one that's doing this. I'm the one shooting – Um, And he said that he was calling because he wanted, you know, what he was about to say he wanted on record and wanted a recording of it. And so he said that he was doing this because of Laura Black and because of what she and her lawyer were doing, which was in reference to, yes, to trying to get this restraining order against him. And Robert then said, you know, are you going to kill anybody else? And Richard said, no, I'm just going to keep shooting up the computers and the equipment in the building. So he actually hung up, but then called back a couple more times and talked to Robert and Robert eventually put another employee, Devin, on the phone and let, you know, Richard talk to him. And Richard also told him that he had warned Laura that he was going to do something like this if she went through with getting this restraining order. He told them that he had a high-powered rifle and he advised Devin, the person he was talking to, to tell people to stay 300 yards away from the building and don't come any closer. Devin said that Richard didn't really sound depressed or agitated while he was saying any of this. He, you know, just seemed kind of indifferent to the whole thing. So at 320 he called the emergency line again and said, quote, "Tell Mei Chang I'm sorry. I've just got Laura, I've got plenty of ammunition. It will all be over at five o'clock." end quote." About 10 minutes later, he finally was put in touch with a law enforcement officer and he told Captain Scott that he actually had shot several people on the top floor and he did not know how many of them were dead. And he, again, reiterated that this was all because of Laura and said that, you know, Laura had done this because she went too far and he now had to make a point. And, you know, he goes on and on about how Laura has belittled him and made him feel, you know, inferior and inadequate. And so this was his way of getting even. And, you know, they said, why don't you just come down, you know, just surrender. You've already done, we don't, you know, we don't know the extent of what you've done yet, but- just come down and surrender. And he actually said he was not ready to surrender because quote, I want to gloat a little bit. So this is just, oh my gosh, there's so many levels (sighs) of just horrifying to this. Yeah. So he, um, yeah. So it's like, he's taunting them. He's still in the building, but there are still people inside the building that are hiding from him. And he's like, no, I'm not going to come down. I'll talk to you on the phone, but I want to have this moment, you know, where I can gloat about what I've just done. Yes. Awful. So the hostage negotiator was then put on the line and they talked to Richard for the next five hours. And Richard kept hanging up so that they couldn't trace his call. I guess they were, I was a little confused about this because obviously they know he's in the ESL building. I don't know how much more trace you're going to get than that. I guess he was worried that they were going to figure out the office. Yeah. Maybe the
1: extensions, if it's calling out from a different extension, sometimes it gives like the last two numbers will be different. So if they're calling he's calling from 09, something, something 09, it could be, all right, he's in this office. So if he moves to another one, now he's calling from this one. So they never really know where exactly he is for too long.
0: Yeah. So that's what he was doing. He was just trying to stay under the radar, but again, he was very calm and very deliberate with the things he was saying and just, you know, continuing to inflict terror on all the people that were around him. So we are going to get into the last bit of this story after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors.
1: When I'm sitting down to edit this week's episode, the first thing I'm going to do is grab a Diet Coke, and the second thing I'm going to do is head to my room and get under my eucalypso home sheets. I mean, if I'm going to be forced to listen to my voice for hours, I need to do it in comfort, and eucalypso home sheets are the definition of comfort.
0: Whether you're a hot sleeper, a cold sleeper, according to science, those people do exist, Eucalypso has made it their mission to keep you comfortable while you get your beauty sleep with their light and naturally temperature regulating sheets. And I can't emphasize enough how comfortable and breathable these sheets really are. In fact, they are actually three times more breathable than cotton and 70% more moisture
1: wicking, which means less laundry for me. Eucalypso sheets are the definition of soft and are made from 100% organic eucalyptus fibers, which makes them also earth friendly. But wait, there's more. Eucalypso sheets are not only comfortable and cool, but also hypoallergenic. I love Eucalypso Home Sheets so much, I just purchased a set for my son's room. So not only can the super sweater in our family stay nice and cool at night, but for the nights I'm in there with him, I can be comfy too. Find them at eucalypsohome.com. Go to eucalypsohome.com and
0: use promo code MOMS for 10% off plus free shipping on your entire purchase. Again, that's E-U-C-A-L-Y-P-S-O-H-O-M-E.com and use code
1: MOMS. You know that thing you keep saying you need to make a doctor's appointment for but never do? Yeah, me too. But now, thanks to Plush Care, putting off your health is a thing of the past. PlushCare provides virtual doctor's appointments through either your smartphone or your computer. I was able to easily pick an appointment time that works for me and book right online. There's no listening to music while sitting on eternal hold. Plus, I never had to leave the house or be stuck making small talk in a waiting room. With PlushCare, I can be diagnosed,
0: treated, and have a prescription sent right to the pharmacy of my choosing within just a few minutes. Plush Care accepts most major insurance carriers and is also available in all 50 states. If you feel like you're having difficulty managing your emotions, which is really all of us these days, Plush Care doctors are there to help.
1: You can schedule an appointment today to discuss your treatment options. Within a matter of minutes, I was able to make an appointment for myself after dealing with viral symptoms for a few days. I was able to go on the Plush Care app, choose a time and doctor I wanted to see, give them a quick overview of my symptoms, and I was scheduled just like that. When it came time for my appointment later that same day, the doctor I saw was caring and thorough and answered all my questions. We're used to things being virtual these days, but I was a little nervous about a virtual doctor's visit, but within just a few seconds, that nervousness went away and my doctor helped find a treatment plan to have me feeling better quickly. It's so easy to put things off, but Plush Care makes it so easy so I can make health a priority and be the best me I can be.
0: Plush Care makes it easier than ever to take care of yourself inside and out. Start your membership today. Go to plushcare.com moms to start your free 30-day trial. That's P-L-U-S-H-C-A-R-E dot com slash moms for a free 30-day trial. Plushcare.com slash moms.
1: Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home?
0: Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply.
1: Now back to the episode. So before the break, we were talking about Richard being in the ESL building shooting people everyone's basically taking a hostage at this point and moving around so police can't exactly figure out where he is but he's on the phone with these negotiators uh these hostage negotiators and they're really trying to work with him to get him and everyone out safely it's been like over five hours it's been hours and hours i can't even imagine what's going on with these people but richard's state of mind is later revealed in these calls with the hostage negotiator So he says to tell Laura that her attorney gave her terrible advice, and he was sorry the attorney wasn't in the building too. He talked about how he was supposed to go to court that next day for the lawsuit that Laura had filed, and he said all he really wanted was to date her. If she had went out with him just one time, that this wouldn't have happened. He said he wanted Laura to live, but not because he cared about her, because he wanted her to remember what happened here. And he said he knew what he was doing was wrong, and he would have to die as well. So on this call, he talks of suicide, and he's afraid that the police would injure him and not actually kill him. And he doesn't want to suffer. Meanwhile, hours and hours in this building, people have been shot, people have been killed, and he's worried about suffering. Poor, poor guy. So he talks again about all of his skills with guns and he says, quote, I rather kill people than animals. It's not sporting to shoot animals, end quote. I don't even know what that means. It's just a lot of words. He just sounds like he's, I mean, he's just saying such off the wall things that I guess it made sense to him at the time. But yeah, I don't get it either. So he tells Lieutenant Rubin, who is the negotiator, there are three to four people dead on the first floor and he says everyone on the second floor is dead. And he goes on to say, he's not crazy. He just really needed to make this point. And he had to do this. So Laura didn't think he was a wimp. Again, all this stuff is just crazy. So he says he doesn't plan to leave that building that day alive. And he tells him, you know, he leaves his insurance to Mei Chang. He writes these bad checks for this motorhome. And he also has a thousand rounds of ammo. And originally, I guess he wanted to blow up the ESL building, but he wasn't able to carry everything he needed to do so. And so while he's on the phone with a negotiator, he discovers two hostages hiding. One of them was actually his former landlady and friend, and he lets her go. And he also ends up letting the other woman go as well. And he says, you know, I just want Laura to know I'm serious. And he wants to, you know, he says he wants to destroy all the equipment in the building. He wants to ruin their systems, ruin everything. And he claims that he doesn't even know who most of the people were that he shot. Lieutenant Rubin asked if Laura was alive and Richard said he didn't know. He said, quote, I hope she's doing good. If the slug did catch her or whatever it was I hit her with, she can't regret it if she doesn't live, End quote. So he has zero remorse for anything he's done, zero remorse for the people that he's killed. And finally, around 430, Richard lets the officers enter the first floor to rescue those you know, injured victims. Richard's hungry at this point. It's been five hours in this standoff. So he requests a sandwich and a drink. And he said, after I get these things, I'll surrender. So police go and get him a turkey ham and cheese sandwich and a diet Pepsi from a local sandwich shop. At 8.30 PM, Richard walks outside with his hands up and he's arrested immediately. Police go and enter the building. There's six people that are dead and four injured. There's actually seven people that are dead in total, including the man that Richard shot in the parking lot on his way in. Laura was counted among the injured, but she had not died. The victims in this story are Joseph Silva. He was a 43-year-old from New Jersey who grew up in California and got his master's degree in mathematics from San Jose University. He was a program engineer for ESL, and he had been there for 15 years. The next victim was Wayne Williams. He was 23 years old and married. He was from California and had a degree in finance and business from San Jose University, and he had just been at ESL for nine months. Glenda Mortiz was 27 years old. Friends and family described her as having a zest for life and said she was enthusiastic about life from an early age. She was at ESL for six years as a production planner. Ron Reed was 26 years old. He had a degree in engineering, and he was an electrical engineer for ESL for four years. Helen Lamparter was 49 years old. She was married and had two teenage daughters. She was a software engineer for ESL for just six months. Lawrence Kane was 46 years old. He was a data processing and teleprocessing specialist, and he had been at ESL for 10 years. Ron Doney was 36 years old. He was a program manager at ESL for four years. And the following are people that were injured in this attack. And the first was Richard Townsend. He was shot in the chest, arm, leg, and hand. The next was a man named Gregory Scott. He had shrapnel wounds on his face. Patty Marcotte broke her arm trying to actually escape out the window. And lastly was Laura Black, who had injuries to her chest, shoulder, and spine. Inside the ESL, police found so much stuff from Richard. They find his guns. They find a smoke bomb. He has leather gloves in there. He has a foot-long buck knife and sheath. And just picturing a foot-long knife A is foot-long incredible. knife. I know. Yeah. He has his belt with ammo-filled pouches. He has bags with more ammo. And he has a vest with ammo in it. And in the motorhome, they find four gallons of gas, a pistol, and over two thousand rounds of ammo. Whenever police get a search warrant and they search Richard's house, they find you know gun accessories, a gas mask, ammo, reloading press, three cans of gunpowder, and gun cleaning equipment. After arrest, he actually had the gall to tell another inmate, "quote I think they should be lenient since it's my first offense. If I did it again, then they should throw the book at me." End quote. Oh my gosh. Can you, I mean, this is just so beyond anything I can understand because this isn't a parking ticket. You killed like 10 people. So they're supposed to let you go and be like, if you do it again, don't you dare do it again. But if you do, right, it's going to be real serious for you, buddy. So in March of 1988, Richard actually writes a letter to Laura from jail. And he says, quote, when I go to the gas chamber, I'll smile for the cameras and you'll know that you have won in the end. End quote. He also wrote his friend named Tom and said, I'm glad Laura's okay, and I hope she understands if I'd really wanted to hurt her, she wouldn't be here today. So it just continues. Oh my gosh. Nothing Mm. stopped him. Mm, My goodness. So his trial began
0: on July 8th, 1991, and he was being charged with seven counts of capital murder, five counts of attempted murder, assault with a deadly weapon, second degree burglary, and vandalism. The prosecution laid out the evidence of Richard's stalking, which, as we said, had gone on for over four years, and they alleged that he went to the ESL building with the specific intention of killing people. The defense admitted that he was responsible for the deaths, but they said that it was not premeditated, which I don't know how they can even say it was not premeditated when he he has been, I mean, he's written over 200 letters talking about how he is dangerous and he doesn't know what he's capable of. And how can you even say this was not a premeditated Killing is beyond me because there is literally proof. He literally wrote this down on paper. Yeah. Multiple
1: times. For years. It's documented, even though they didn't have stalking charges, it's still documented in everything. Ask a witness. Everyone would tell you that this was going to happen.
0: Yeah. So they claimed that, the defense claimed, that Richard went to ESL. To kill himself in front of Laura, but that he did not go there to kill others or to destroy anything, which again, I don't see why it matters, whether that was his intention or not. That's not what he did. He didn't go there and kill himself in front of Laura. He went there and shot innocent people. So I don't really understand
1: how that's a defense at all. One gun and one bullet. There wouldn't, there's no need for all the rest of it. That was a plan.
0: Exactly. So in the trial, Laura, of course, testified and she was the main witness and Richard also testified and spoke, you know, about the way that he stalked Laura. While he was, he, you know, he said that while he was learning everything about her and even getting, you know, copies of her keys, he never thought that he was doing anything wrong. He never saw anything wrong with any of this behavior. He said that, you know, his job at ESL and his work with the Navy, those, you know, that taught him how to... do some level of spying and he thought that this was the same thing he said quote there was no difference between the government's authority to spy and his ability to spy so long as he didn't harm anybody well again he did harm people so yeah exactly so he said that he made these letters that he wrote to laura he made them sound threatening so that laura would talk to him and he said looking back the letters really did seem more intimidating than he intended he claimed that he went to ESL that day to try to convince Laura not to move forward with the restraining order. They were supposed to go to court the following day. So he is saying, you know, my whole point of doing this was so that Laura would, I guess, see me with guns and be terrified and not take me to court. I, yeah. The thought process here doesn't make any sense to me. So he wanted to intimidate her. His plan, he said, was he wanted to intimidate her into getting into this motorhome with him. And once she was inside the motorhome, he was going to photograph her so he would have photographic evidence to take to court to prove that they were in a relationship. I don't know how he thought any of this was going to
1: work. Yeah. Oh my god. This gosh. is
0: what he says was his plan. So he also said that he wanted to show her his gun collection to scare her away from going, you know, going to court the next day. And then if none of that worked, That's when he was going to shoot himself in front of Laura. However, he allegedly realized that he could not go through with this plan because he said, quote, that was not the kind of behavior that I had ever done before in reference to forcing her into his motorhome and taking pictures of her against her will. (sighs) So I guess that's a step too far. You know, all this other stuff that he's done, you know, but now, no, I can't force her into the motorhome and take pictures of her. That's too that's just too much. So his new plan now was to go through with taking his own life in Laura's office, and he said that he didn't plan on killing anybody else, and he only had a vague recollection of how any of that happened. Hmm. And, um, you know, he said, I wasn't angry at anybody at ESL, and still maintains that he did not want to hurt Laura, but he says he just doesn't remember, the you know, detector going into the building and opening lie. fire. Yeah. So on October 1st, 1992, of course, he was found guilty on all the charges that he was um, that were put forth. And in January of 1993, he was finally sentenced and he was given the death penalty. He actually appealed this and on it took a long time. But on July 2nd, 2009, the California Supreme Court denied his appeal. And he is currently on death row at San Quentin State Prison. Hmm. thankfully he is behind bars where he belongs yeah so just some final thoughts that i have um as we said before california was the first state to pass anti-stalking laws and it made stalking behaviors illegal and that was in 1990 but before the passage of these laws according to the national criminal justice uh, reference service that's a mouthful um before the passage of these laws the police and prosecutors often felt hamstrung in their efforts to assist women who had been threatened by a stalker because there were no applicable laws to protect a person from this trauma until the perpetrator actually did something. So personally, I think we have a long way to go with stalking protection for people who are being stalked. And I have, you know, I I don't want to get into too personal, but I do have experience with a very close person to in my life, um, had been stalked by somebody to the point that this person had to actually move away and go to a different state and it is very 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 scary. I know firsthand how terrifying this is and there is not a lot that gets done about it. I I it's not like a dig I'm making at police or investigators or anything but I think we have a long way to go before p- victims of stalking can feel safe even going yeah. to the police. You know, and it's true. If even now that there even though there are laws against stalking, if you go to the police and tell them that somebody is harassing you in this way, They really still don't do a lot. I mean, they say, like, unless it really is one of those situations, until they act on it and do something. But unfortunately, sometimes the action is murder. And so it's like, we have to come up with a better way of getting people help whenever they are clearly showing signs that they need it. Because once this something like this happens, I mean, you can't go back, you can look back at it and say, oh, all the signs were there. But it's like, it is very frustrating that. Not a lot gets done about stalking. And I and that's what makes it so scary to me because there is not a lot that you can do. Yeah. And oh, it's just so terrible. So yeah. as I mentioned before, there are several types of stalker profiles. They have obviously studied this now and they they've realized that there are different types of stalking. It's not just cut and dry, it's not black and white. So there's the rejected stalker who usually this is somebody who has been in a relationship already and they've broken up. And so now they feel rejected by that person and they take it as an insult and they feel wounded emotionally. And so they are seeking vindication. Then there's the resentful stalker. And these are self-righteous, self-pitying people. And they are very threatening. But according to studies, they are actually the least likely to act on the threats that they make. Then there's the predatory stalker, and they are all about sex, gratification, control, and violence, and they don't always know the victim, and the victim doesn't always know that they're being stalked until, you know, the stalker makes themselves known. Then there's the intimacy-seeking stalker, and they believe that they are loved or will be loved by their victim, and those that are in this category are often suffering from mental illness and delusions, Then the incompetent suitor stalker is socially backward. They don't understand social norms and rules when it comes to dating or romance, and they usually don't actually mean any harm. They don't have any ill will um, behind their stalking behaviors. So I think Richard was some combination of these last two, probably the intimacy seeking type because I think that he did mean harm. Like he was very clearly intimidating her and trying to threaten her. I believe that he was most likely the um, intimacy seeker type. And this, like, as I said, is they're fueled by mental illness. And this allows them to believe that they're already in a relationship with their victim, which they actually have a term for. And it is called aerotomanic delusions. And I think he very clearly had that because he actually did tell people, you know, like, he told the lawyers, like, we are already in, I have proof, we are in a relationship. Right. It's like, if he actually believed that, then I feel like he probably falls into that category. So many times, stalkers are incredibly charming and not even remotely off-putting until you realize that they are stalking you, which in this case is true. A lot of people up to this, until he did this, yep. people said that he was great. He, he, There was no signs that he was capable of something like this. Um, so there is a link between stalking and narcissism. And stalkers often feel like they are the most important person in the world. But they, of course, lack real, you know, relationships and real connections with other people. There's a doctor named John Moore who outlined what he calls the obsessive love wheel. And there are four stages of this. First is the attraction phase, which is where they see somebody and they're instantly attracted within just minutes of meeting and they feel this sense of urgency to rush into a relationship with this person and they have these unrealistic fantasies about this potential relationship and the way that it's going to unfold and then comes the anxious phase which is really the turning point and it's when the stalker creates this illusion of intimacy regardless of the other person's feelings and they have this desire to be in constant contact with that person and they start having these obsessive and controlling behaviors and even violent you know verbal and physical reactions to being denied by their victim. And then they move into the obsessive phase, which is where things rapidly escalate, You know, their unhealthy attachment rapidly escalates, and they become neurotic and compulsive, and they start with the constant phone calls and showing up where the victim is all the time, and they really just have this inability to stop thinking about the victim. And then finally, the last phase of this obsessive love wheel is the destructive phase, and this is really the danger zone, and this is when the stalker finally comes to grips that They are being rejected by the person that they have their sights set on, and that sends them into a deep, deep spiral. Sometimes depression comes along, they lose their self-esteem, they start hating themselves, and then the anger and rage builds up, and sometimes suicidal thoughts. Commonly, according to this book, Dr. Moore says that usually this is when um, the stalker will become suicidal, but obviously they can go the other way and harm others instead. Um, And he was suicidal, so... I feel like it's really, I hate to say, I hate to use the word classic case, but Richards, uh, it seems like he really did unfold in a way that now that we have researched and studied that that he followed a typical pattern in stalking. And so I feel like it is good that we have kind of um, figured out like what the signs are. But when it comes to like being rehabilitated, I I told Melissa before we started recording, I went down a rabbit hole and just started reading all kinds of information about stalking because it really was super fascinating. And it kind of got me thinking like, Can stalkers be rehabilitated if you, you know, if somebody has done this before, maybe not to the level of taking it, you know, to a murderous level, but if somebody has, you know, done stalking behaviors, can they overcome that so that they don't do it again and harm somebody else? So I read this paper that was written by um, Dr. Rachel McKenzie and David James, and they believe, and I also believe that legal sanctions just are not enough to prevent stalking because the fundamental cause of the stalking isn't going to be addressed with legal action, right? So if you are saying, here's a restraining order, stay away, that's not doing anything to, that's not treating what is going on in the mind of the person that's stalking. So they are saying that treatment involves psychological intervention and there's, you know, strong evidence that mental disorders are common among stalkers. So treating the mental illness behind the behavior is really the proposed method of curbing stalking behavior. So basically counseling and psychiatric treatment when it's necessary, um, which I just, I totally agree. We do need more um, early intervention with things like this. Yeah. It is still scary though to think that that really is the way because a lot of times if people aren't willing to get that help, no one can force somebody to go to counseling. You right, know what I'm right. saying? So it's like if that person has to agree that there is something going on that they need help with in order to actually get them there. So I do think we have a long way to go when it comes to the topic of stalking and protecting victims of stalking. We're not quite there yet. I feel like we we have more work to do in that department.
1: For sure, and it seems like it needs to be on both sides like you were saying counseling and then also legally. Um we've you and I have had conversations off the mic about this cuz we both have connections to people who have dealt with this and even like when this happened to somebody I knew, the police literally said, "Hey, you've got to protect yourself. It will take us a while to get here. Like you need to be able to do something for yourself." That's terrifying to know yeah. they can only do so much and they could not have been more helpful to this person and did everything they could, but still said, this is as much as we can do. Like they even drove by their house for a while. I mean, they did everything. I I feel like they went above and beyond what they had to do, but it still right. isn't enough. I mean, it's still, there's just nothing there. This person had to testify in court in front of this person. And the person literally directly spoke to them the whole time. Just mm. like chills down my spine. And there's, there's nothing they could do. They just had to sit there through it. So there's just so much to do, so much to learn about. It's so great that they have, like, that this research is going on and that hopefully people will see signs sooner. I do want to recommend something. Um, If you guys are familiar with Laura Laura Richards, she hosts Real Crime Profile, but she also hosts a podcast called The Crime Analyst. And she's so smart, um, so well-spoken, and she works tirelessly to work on stalking uh, laws and um, abuse against women, stuff like that. But she is, like, a huge advocate, for more like stalking laws like in other countries too where nothing has been done and here in the U.S. where more things need to be done. So um that's really a great podcast if you want to learn more about that. She's just an incredible person to follow and like I learned so much just following her Twitter page. I learned so much where I'm like, wow, I had no idea. <laughs> so um yeah. yeah, so man, what a story. This is just it's you can almost see you know you can it's hindsight is 2020 20, right so everybody could see this yes. after but during it people no one thinks somebody's going to go this far you just don't it's not a normal thing so you don't think somebody you know could do this so if you were interested in this
0: case um and you want to watch a movie about it not a documentary it is not um a fact i mean it is fact but it's there is a tv movie made for tv movie that came out in 1993 and brooke shields is actually in it and she plays the role of laura black um it's called stalking laura and like i said it is a 1993 made for tv movie but it was perfect for me it's perfect for like sitting and watching on like a saturday did you um watch the movie i haven't watched
1: it yet no i'm looking forward to it
0: yeah it was really good and it was pretty um i thought that it followed the actual facts of the story pretty closely so um yeah if you want to check that out if you're looking for something to watch on a rainy day Check that out. It's called Stalking Laura. And like I said, it has Brooke Shields in it. So I love Brooke Shields. I think she's great. I love all 90s movies and actresses that were in every 90s movie. So it was perfect for me. Okay, Melissa. So it is time to turn the page and move on to last thing before we go. And since it is almost love time. Oh, don't (laughs) ever say that again. (laughs) I hate it. Almost Valentine's Day. I know. So um, we're going to do a Valentine's-y theme last thing before we go we have a couple of uh listeners actually wrote to us and told us some valentine's day stories that we're going to share and i have a valentine's day story of my own to share and um i have something else funny that i found on the internet that melissa will like hopefully i'm sure i will so Catherine wrote to us on facebook and said my sweet boyfriend of one month took me to a nice italian restaurant in downtown nashville for our first valentine's day The atmosphere was beautiful, but neither of us knew they had a special Valentine's Day menu, and our dinner bill was astronomical. After getting the bill, he had to excuse himself to go move money around. I felt so terrible. We have been married six years now, and we'll never go fancy for uh, Valentine's again. Oh my gosh, I feel this so hard, because I have totally been in a position where I wasn't expecting something to be... The price that it was, and then you're kind of in this awkward position where like you have to figure out how to pay for it. But oh my gosh, that is me like furiously on my phone, like logging into like all my accounts, like moving like six dollars from one to you know, right? and then move you know it just because I never have money like in any account, so I'm like maybe if I combine them all somehow, I will be able to pay for this. So I can totally just picture someone doing that, and especially when it's like you're taking out somebody that you're, you know, trying to impress them for the first Valentine's Day. Like, oh my gosh, how embarrassing. Not embarrassing because it happens to all of us, but like I'd be the person, I feel like it's embarrassing. You know, you feel embarrassed, but there's no reason to.
1: (laughs) I'd be more like, you're my person. Like, I do the same thing. This is totally, I get it. I'd be like, can we just split this on four cards? One of them might (laughs) have the wrong expiration date. Can we just do something? Okay, I'm going to read one from uh, Instagram. And this is from LB Mostert. I did that wrong, I'm sure. So it says, in high school, I went with an old friend who I haven't seen in some time to the Valentine's Ball. While on the date, I learned he actually has a girlfriend. And when he saw the shock look on my face, he said, Ah, you're disappointed because you thought I'm still single and available. And it just went downhill from there. I ended up. We ended up leaving the ball to go to a concert of Tree 63... Of course, he took off his jacket and tie and looked appropriately dressed while I stood there at the show with a frown getting strange looks from everyone. Oh, did I mention his girlfriend also joined us at the concert? (laughs) (laughs) I just can't see something getting any worse than that. Just being like, now you you thought you were on a date. You're not on a date. Uh, You're overly (laughs) dressed. And now his girlfriend comes for a romantic date with the two of them and you're the third wheel. That's... Oh, that's honestly, you have the makings for um like a, a Netflix movie. Uh, if Emily in Paris could be made, I think you can get this made. This is great. You should really <laughs> workshop it and send it to him. All right. So
0: I have a it's not a personal story. It didn't happen to me, but it happens to happen to somebody I know. And I still like just cannot get over it because I felt so bad for this person. So it was a friend of mine and she actually took out she paid a lot of money to um have you know, the billboards that you can, they're like digital ones. And so they change like whatever's on them. So she took out ad space basically on this big billboard so that her um, husband would see it. It was like a Valentine's day, happy Valentine's day, love you, something, something, whatever. And she paid for 30 minutes for it to be up there so that it would be on whenever he was driving home from work. And he would see this big billboard, beautiful message, happy Valentine's day, paid a lot of money for it. It was like right off of I-4, like this big billboard. That day, that Valentine's Day, he went home a different way and he never (gasps) saw the billboard. And so she actually was like there, like she had, um, she was down there, like, so she could have a picture of it and everything. And she was like hoping, you know, that he would obviously drive by and see it and call her and everything would be, you know, lovely Valentine's Day story. And um, he never, like called her no. or anything, like, he never uh, acknowledged it. And so finally, she called and she was like, "Where are you? What's going on? Are you on the way home?" And he was like, "Yeah, I had to stop somewhere. I don't know." In the end, it meant that he did not take the way home that he normally did. Of course, on that day, and it was only up for thirty minutes. And so he uh, he missed it. He missed the message. was oh. like, so something that would happen <laughs> <gosh>. to me. <laughs>
1: I know. Oh, that is, oh, that just like puts a pit in my stomach because you're spending all this money. Have such a, that's like such a sweet thing to do. And then be like, oh, uh-huh. and try not to like, I try not to lose my mind after that. Like of all the days I do something nice I know. for you <laughs> and you have to go another way. Are you kidding me? Yeah. It would not end up well for me. I would absolutely lose my mind. Oh my gosh. I love that story. I mean, it's terrible, but it's hilarious. It's, it makes a better story than just, I got you a billboard. Like, that's a much better story right. <laughs> now. <laughs> yeah,
0: I was like, well, at least you got a picture. At least you got the picture of it, you know, to prove that you actually did that. But, yeah, I would be so upset if I went through all that trouble and, like, tried to put together this amazing surprise. And uh, it's totally something my husband would do, too. Be like, I'm – today, of all days, so I'm going to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Away. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, so I found this one thing, Melissa, while I was looking for – um Valentine's horror stories and it just reminded me of you because I feel like this is very oh much gosh. a you and your husband Valentine's date night and you'll see why so um, I don't know who this person is I just found this online so it says my now husband pulled out all the stops making an epic three course meal in the process he clogged our kitchen sink also leading to our bathroom sink overflowing I think he and our landlord stayed up until 1am trying to fix it and save our hardwood floors from water damage sadly Aww. no romance was on the table that <laughs> night but
1: <laughs> No, that's a hundred percent a problem that would happen at my house. Um, yes, but ours yes, would be I, I, like somebody had to use the restroom. Ours would get way more graphic. Somebody had to use the restroom that overflowed. That would be the entire night. That's my life. I don't get it. That oh much. well, I was
0: just thinking back to um, you oh, leaving yeah. the water on and actually flooding. Your house. And yeah,
1: I still like that ended up being one of the worst mistakes I made and one of the best ones because we got all new floors, everything was renewed. And I was like, this is not a good thing to let people know that you just get all new things whenever things flood because right. that <laughs> makes me very loosey goosey with my pipes. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> just kidding. Insurance company, don't drop me.
0: What about you, Melissa? Do you have any Valentine's horror stories? We don't really celebrate Valentine's Mm-mm. Day because, um, my wedding anniversary is a week after Valentine's Day. So we we just are too cheap to celebrate two things. So we just celebrate the one. So Valentine's Day is not very it's not very exciting. I'm not anymore. very,
1: yeah. I like a lot of times we'll do like a night before or a night after, like a, a, the week before or a week after, similar, just kind of go out. But the older I get, the more I don't like doing things. So I'm like, what if we get Longhorn and Right watch a movie? <laughs> and stay at home. <laughs> <laughs> Hear me out. I know. I'll wash my face. It'll be a real good time. So that's about it. Yeah, it's yeah. not that exciting. I have friends, and they always do like a meal with their kids on Valentine's Day. And I'm like, actually, that's very, very sweet. Like, I don't know, just like takes the pressure off of doing something crazy. I'm, I'm not a big Valentine's Day person. I think it's great if people are, but I don't know. It's just like a whole, yeah. it's a whole another thing. I don't want to spend more money on something like. I don't want my husband to buy me flowers. I hate flowers. That's just like something that now I've got stinky water flowers that my kid's going to knock over and flood that side of (laughs) (laughs) it. And I don't think my insurance will pay for that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't mind like whatever. Roses are fine. I don't – it is. I don't mind getting flowers. But like you said, I just don't – and then I don't want – I'm so cheap. Like you said, I don't want to have money spent on me like on gifts and stuff. Like I would rather use that money and go do something. You know, so I don't know. The idea behind Valentine's Day. I want – To be shown love every single day.
1: (laughs) All right, there you go. I told my husband, he was like, Can I give you a hug? Because I was like, All worked up about something. I was like, How about this word hug? You can just say nice things to me. Like, I don't want to be touched right now, but just compliment me for like one minute. And he started, and I was like, None of this is genuine. Please forget it. I forget it. Just give me a real person hug, I guess. Just, I hate it.
0: All right. Well, that was it for this week. Um, hope you guys enjoyed this episode. And yeah, we'll be back next week. Same time, same place. A
1: new story. Have a great week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.